0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Thank you, Kelsey. Good morning. If you have a Bible, we'll turn to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in a couple places in 1 Thessalonians, but we'll start in the verses that Kelsey just read for us. As you're turning there, uh, if you're new, my name is Jamin, and welcome to. Uh, Citizens Church. We're really honored that you chose to uh, worship with us. Whether church is a thing that you do often and you're just looking for a different one, uh, or maybe this is your first time to do anything like this, wherever you are in kind of that spectrum, welcome. Uh, we really are thrilled that you're here. If you're watching online, maybe you're doing that for the first time, or maybe you've been doing that for a really long time. Uh, welcome. This summer, we've been walking through our uh, church's beliefs, and and by our church's beliefs, what we said is it's really the church's. Uh, beliefs. These are the, the kind of the foundational truths that um, that make up what Christians have believed for thousands of years. So long before uh, Citizens Church was a thing and long after uh, our time, uh, Christians will still be believing these things. And this morning we're covering, if you see it on the screen behind me, the way it's listed uh, in our series and on our website is uh, resurrection and the consummation of the kingdom of God, which I love the way that sounds. But to put it more simply, we are considering the sure and secure belief that one day Jesus comes back, Uh, that the day that we're looking towards, the day that we're setting our hope in is the day when Jesus returns. He brings his kingdom to completion. It's the last day of history. Those who trust in Jesus are raised just like Jesus was raised, and then we live happily ever after uh, with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's coming, and that's what we'll give our time um, to this morning. On Tuesday of this week... Carrie, my wife and I, uh, we will celebrate 14 years of marriage. Uh, We married, yeah, praise God. It's been harder for her than it has been for me, so those claps are for her. Um, We married on July 26, 2008. Uh, We married young, at least it seems young now. Uh, She was 22 when we married, I was 21 When we married, we met right out of high school, dated a few years. She was about to graduate college. I was nowhere close to graduating college. It took me a long time. So uh, July 26th, on a Saturday, 2008, a couple of college kids got married in New Braunfels, Texas, and that was just a few days shy of 14 years ago, and our 14 years have been really full of life. It's six moves, two apartments, four houses, a few different churches, a few different jobs, three kids, one dog. Uh, A few great vacations, a ton of fighting and conflict, uh, a couple of really, really hard marriage years, a couple of really, really good uh, marriage years, so many moments of extending grace and forgiveness. And and by God's grace, I can say a few days shy of 14 years, I just love her more than I ever have. And I believe our our best days are ahead. But before we got married on July 26, 2008, uh, we were engaged and we did premarital counseling with one of my Bible college professors who uh, also was an LPC. And um, so Carrie drove up from a college in the South and uh, we met, I didn't want to give you the opportunity. Uh, we met at a uh, twisted root burger company in Deep Ellum. And um, it was our first of two counseling sessions. Looking back, we needed like 20 because we had a lot to work through, but we only got two. And there were two things I remember about that first counseling sh- session. Uh, the first thing I remember is the bacon ranch cheeseburger I got was incredible. It was really, really good. Uh, the second thing I remember is something the counselor said to us when we were sitting at the table. Uh, I, I think about it all the time, truly. He said, The most important day of your marriage is not your wedding day, it's your last day. Um, anyone can have a great wedding, but not everyone has a, a great marriage, and it's not how a marriage begins that's most telling, it's how a marriage ends, that's most telling. So this sermon is not about marriage, but, but follow me. He, he asked us, he said, envision the end that you want. Like if you could just describe it, what kind of last day of marriage do you want? And, uh, and he asked us to, to kind of explain it to him. And so we both answered something to the effect of we want to be old and in love. That's how we want it to end. We want decades of faithfulness together, and we want it to end, you know, something like one of us at the other's bedside in a hospital saying goodbye to their best friend. That's what we want the last day to look like. And I think both of us in that moment knew that it would be Carrie saying goodbye to me. I would go first because I eat bacon ranch cheeseburgers, right? So uh, we answered, and the counselor said, okay, live for that day. Uh, live for the last day, not the first day, but live for that kind of last day that you want. And I've found that to be really compelling encouragement. I have found that to be really good marriage advice, right? There's a lot of that that you can't control and that I can't control, but marriage is really hard. Nothing has exposed my selfishness like marriage has. And so on the days when I'm thinking not primarily about the current day, but on the days when I'm thinking about that future day that I hope comes for us, it helps me be more, more faithful in the current day. And I, and I think like that for, for all the things I love. I think like that for my kids. I think about future days that are coming for them and what I want to be true on that day and, 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 and that shapes how I parent them now. I think about that for us as a church, uh, for Citizens Church, on, on whatever my last day is here, which I hope God gives me like a 30, 35-year run here. But on the last day, the things that I want to be, to be true here. Uh, but here's what's true there's so much about that that i can't control there, there's so much you know in marriage and church and kids it's compelling to think about that but it's not guaranteed like you know what would have been even better sitting at that restaurant in deep Ellum, sitting with that counselor if he had asked what kind of day do you want and we answer you know we want to be old and in love and we describe it to him and then imagine he had looked at us and said i've got good news it's going to happen I have proof, and then he pulls out a picture that he has of me and Carrie in our 80s, and he slides it across the table to us, and it's her by my bedside. She's still beautiful and kind, and I'm still, I am still have a great personality, and, and, and there we are, old and in love, and he says, look, you make it. This is the last day. You, you finished well. All that, all that you had hoped is, is going to come true, right? This is your sure and certain future. And I ask him, I like, hey, how did you get this? And he said, don't ask questions. It ruins the sermon illustration. And he points to it, though, and he says, look, this is, this is your future. This is what's waiting for you. How different is that? Rather than just imagining a day that may or may not come, how different is it to, to see of where you're headed to know for certain, like not something that we're striving for, but something that is sure and secure. And, and how might that you know, affect conflict in marriage or illness in marriage or the difficult years of marriage, those seasons? Like to get that picture and to be told that is certain to be the last day. Not living for a day that may or may not come, but live for a day that is certain to come. How much hope would that give? The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that the moment you belong to Jesus, you get, not in marriage, but in life, you get a sure and secure picture of where your life is headed. To belong to Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus means this, friend. Look right at me. You know how this ends for you. We know how this ends for us. We have that kind of certainty in life that there is a last day coming for you and for me. It's the last day of history and it's the day when Jesus comes again where he returns. He brings the kingdom to its fullness. Heaven and earth are reunited. The dead in Christ are raised. We live forever and ever enjoying God, loving his people in his good world. That's your future. That's what's waiting for you. That's how this ends And then continues on for you. And that's a theme that's all over the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is one of the first letters that Paul wrote, and he's writing to a people that he loves very deeply. It's a people experiencing suffering and persecution, and there's this immense cultural pressure on this church to deny Jesus, to turn from the faith. And so, what Paul does when he writes is over and again in his letter, he points to their last day, he points to how this ends. It's as if they're at a table together and he slides this picture to them over and again and says, look, here's where you're headed. Here's, here's your sure and certain future in Christ. So what I want to do is I want to draw out of these verses, look at three or four places in First Thessalonians where he does that and emphasize what he emphasizes and, and, and draw out what is true for them on that day, what's true for you on that day, what's true for me on that day. It's three things. On that day, he loves you. On that day, he perfects you. And on that day, he comforts you. He loves you. He perfects you. He comforts you. That's your future. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, hold on to that, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he tells the Thessalonians, he kind of tells a little bit of their story back to them. He says, You turned to God from idols uh, to wait for Jesus. He points to this day when Jesus is going to return. You're waiting for Jesus from heaven who delivers you from the wrath to come. So this is the first part of the picture. This is the first thing that's true for them, true for you, true for me. Jesus, on that day, saves us from judgment because he loves us. On the last day, you, Christian, are delivered by Jesus from judgment because you are covered by Jesus in his love. Now, I want to pause for a minute, and this is a bit of a hard turn, but we need to pay attention to something. When Jesus returns, some are delivered and some get wrath. It's right here in this passage. You find it other places in the Bible. When Jesus returns, he makes all things right, and part of making all things right is bringing God's righteous judgment to those who have rejected God and who have wrecked God's good world. I believe, friends, I believe every word of the Bible to be true. I believe God is just, and I believe an extension of God's love is his justice, which includes wrath towards anything that hurts what God loves. And and all of us, by our fallen nature, hurt things that God loves. And I believe when Jesus returns, he comes as rescuer for his people. He also comes as vindicator of God's holiness. But I want you to know this. Something in me always pauses around passages like this, like the wrath to come, and I kind of wince a little bit. And and maybe it's because when I read passages like this, and I all of a sudden hear all of these sermons from the past of these angry preachers yelling about hell, trying to scare people into loving God, but doing so in a way that keeps them from seeing the loving God. So two important things to note about this passage that, that just keep me personally grounded in truth that I think is worth sharing. He says that Thessalonian Christians, what their story is is they turned to God from idols, meaning their city is a combination of two kinds of people. Their city is a combination of those whose lives are oriented around the true and living God and whose lives are oriented around a godless existence, around false gods or, or no God at all, And so there are those Christians whose lives revolve around God in the present, and then there are those whose lives revolve around something that's not God or something that's a false God. And I don't know how it all works, but in that city, there are those who follow the living God, those who didn't. In our cities, in Collin County, there are those who follow the living God and those who don't. And as C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, in the end, there are only two kinds of people, Those who say to God, thy will be done, those who follow him, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Lewis's point is all who are separated from God in judgment, what that is, is it's simply a continuation in the afterlife of what they chose in this life, a godless existence, a God-turning existence. But there's something else, even more. That's going on specific to these people. Think about this. I mentioned this already, but these Christians are under intense persecution. In Acts chapter 17, it tells us that Paul and his buddy Silas brought the gospel to Thessalonica. And shortly after Thessalonians begin responding to the gospel following Jesus, turning from idols to the true and living God, a riot breaks out. And the persecution is so intense and so severe that Paul and Silas have to flee for their lives. But these brand new Christians have nowhere to go. So they stay in Thessalonica and they are intensely, mercilessly persecuted by the people that live in the city with them. And so for these Christians, what they're hearing is on that day, many of them have watched their family members or their fellow Christians be killed for their faith. On that day, the last day, God will do something about evil, including the evil done to you. Like someone reading this probably it's like, remember the time the mob drug you through the streets and beat you in front of your family? God saw that. And God's going to do something about that. Uh, Tim Keller preached a sermon about hell from Luke chapter 16. And in that sermon, he quoted a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volv. He experienced, uh, this this man, this theologian experienced violence and persecution, and he wrote a book uh, about it. and, And in that book, he says, look, Belief in God's future judgment, believing that God comes in wrath, is the only thing that can empower us to endure injustice now because we believe God will do something about it then. And then he says this, he says, the idea of a God that doesn't judge wrong is a privileged person's idea. Someone who has never been through anything painful enough to require require God to act. Like if you believe God does not bring judgment in response to evil, he says it like this, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence, meaning us taking vengeance into our own hands, corresponds to God's refusal to judge. It takes a certain kind of quiet, sheltered life to believe that. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will die. And he concludes with this, if God were not angry at injustice, that God would not be worthy of worship. We live in a world where we go to great lengths to cover over and even beautify our depravity and to minimize the hurt we cause others and God as sinful humans. And in, in the quiet of a suburban home, we can grumble about the God who judges or how unfair the idea of hell seems to me. But in a scorched land, that won't do. In a city like Thessalonica, whose soil was wet with the blood of Christians, or in elementary schools in churches filled with bullet holes, in cities and homes that celebrate things that break God's heart in human hearts that are completely given over to worship of self and rejection of God and hatred of others and harm to others. Those are all very real, very egregious offenses against the image of God. And most importantly, very real, very egregious offenses against the character of God. And if God were not angry at that kind of injustice, he would not be worthy of worship. But our God is a God who tells us that we can entrust our justice to him. Paul says in another letter, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Leave it to the Lord. He will repay, and he will repay perfectly and fairly and equitably and rightly. And so when Jesus returns, all sin, all injustice, all wrong, will meet the righteous, perfect, pure justice of God. And that is not cause for fearing him. That's cause for trusting him, for having confidence in him. He will make it right. He'll make it right. Now see this. This point is about love, I promise. What's the difference between wrath and rescue? Is it that some people are bad and have done really terrible things, and some people are good? Is it that some people are really awful, and then other people are just kind of mildly awful or something like that? In between the two phrases about Jesus' return, let's read it. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What was true about Christians in this city? What's true about Christians in this room? We believe. We've trusted in the resurrected Christ. It says about the Thessalonians, they turned to God from idols. Think about that. They had a lifetime of worshiping false gods. They were guilty of the very things that those around them were guilty of. They didn't have a better moral resume than anyone else. Maybe they too were guilty of the kinds of things that were now being done to them. Maybe they had done to others what what now they're experiencing. And so if that's true, how can they be sure when Jesus comes, he comes to rescue? How can I be sure, A, a sinful person who has done to God and others the very things I know not to do? Because in Jesus... All who believe in the resurrected Jesus and put their faith in the resurrected Jesus, our judgment day has been moved from a day in the future to a day in the past. Jesus dies on a cross, takes the punishment for sin, which is death, is raised by the Father in victory over sin and death, and all who turn to him have their judgment day moved from future to past. All of our sin, all of our injustice taken by Jesus, and and hear me, friends, if all of God's wrath for sin is behind you, behind you, nailed to the cross, buried in the ground, conquered by our resurrected advocate, King Jesus. If all of God's wrath is behind you, what's left for you? Love. All God has left for you is love. What will be true on that last day? He loves you. You will be unmistakably convinced of how thoroughly God loves you. The picture is you and Jesus, you and God, all is right between you. I imagine at some point you and Jesus embrace, can you imagine that? He loves you. He loves you now. He will love you then. I think for some of us, what we really believe is that we won't really know where we stand with God until we stand before him. And there's a big question mark around that day. So we think of the last day, and it's like this looming court date, and we're not quite sure how it's going to turn out for us. God hasn't quite made up his mind about us, and so we won't know for sure until we stand before him and he passes some sort of verdict. That's not the picture we get of that day. It doesn't say Jesus might deliver you. It doesn't say Jesus is thinking about delivering you. No, it says he will deliver you from the wrath to come. Wrath is behind. All that's ahead is love. On that day, he loves you. It's not a future court date. It's a future homecoming. On that day, you do not stand under a judge's gavel. You're welcomed into a Savior's arms. He loves you. On that day, he loves you. On that day, he perfects you. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. It'll be on the screen behind me. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. It might be my favorite verse in, in all the Bible as of this week. Now may the God of peace himself, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely... Those those are some of the most comforting words you will hear. On that day, your future, God will perfect you. Jesus will make you whole and holy. I turned 35 last month. My son asked me a question on my birthday. He said, Dad is this what you thought your life would look like when you were 35? <laughs> and it felt like there was something behind it. It felt like he had an answer to that, and he was asking me. Uh, and I, I, we talked. I said, well, yes and no. Um, yes, in that there are some things that, that are kind of according to plan, my plan, for whatever that's worth. Uh, no, in that there are some things that are just infinitely better than I could have ever imagined. I've been so spoiled by God. And then also know, and I told him this, I said, honestly, uh, I thought at 35 I would be different than I am. That's what's true. I thought I would be godlier. I thought I'd be wiser. I thought I'd be more mature. And I said that to him, and he looked at me and he said, I get that. <laughs> Happy birthday, Dad. But I mean it, like... Um, you know, one of the first verses I memorized uh, as a kid were the fruits of the spirit because there was a song that went with it. I'm not going to sing it, but it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, oh. And I thought I'd have a lot more of all of those things by now. Um, this week, Carrie and and both of our daughters had COVID. Um, they're, they're better now, but but that just pressurized the whole week for me because them being sick is about me, obviously. I told you I'm not quite where I need to be yet, but uh, but what I mean is is it was it just pressurized everything. It was a full weekend here for us at Citizens. We had things going on yesterday full day. It's a full day today, services and then membership class this afternoon. And so I was just trying to do all of it. I was trying to study and trying to work and trying to care for Carrie and care for the girls and keep the house in decent shape and, and all of it. And. Tuesday night, uh, I go to pick up Chipotle for dinner, just to make an easy dinner decision. I get home, I get everyone their food, and I'm gonna sit down and just kinda have a moment for, for me. And Carrie comes out and she says, hey, they, uh, they put cheese on my meal. And she's allergic to dairy, so she can't have cheese. And then she does that thing where she's like, I'll just find something else. And I'm like, no, we're gonna get you your food. And so I'm back in the car, <laughs> headed to Chipotle. And I am so mad, I'm so mad. And I don't know if you do this, I don't know if you're weird like me, but I begin rehearsing in my head the interaction that I'm gonna have with this Chipotle worker, right? And I'm not gonna yell, because I don't, I don't yell, but I am gonna be really passive aggressive, and that's, that's my point. And then I think, you know what, they've done this before. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe it's time to write a review on Google like a scathing review, but, but I don't want people to see my name under it, like associated with it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write this really scathing review and just sign it Adam Hawkins or something like that. right? <laughs> and what's happening in that moment is all of my frustration and stress over my circumstances over the day, over the week, all of that is about to pour out onto some poor image bearer of God who accidentally messed up an order and who knows what's going on in, in their life. Right. And I'm driving there and I just had this thought I I thought I'd be better than this by now. Just thought I'd be better than this. I didn't do anything crazy, by the way. Somebody asked me after the 9 a.m., they're like, hey, so what what did you say? And I was like, I just was kind of really quiet just to close the loop. Don't go like Google a news story or something. But at 35, um, well over two decades of following Jesus, 15 years in ministry, I thought I'd be more patient. I thought I'd be harder to frustrate. I thought I'd be slower to anger. I thought by now, truly, guys, I thought right by now, I would just be floating around praying for people, right? Like, I would respond, like, the week that I've had, I would respond perfectly to a week like that. It'd be like, oh, the family's sick? How can I serve, you know? Oh, we got to preach Sunday. Well, God just writes the sermons now, you know? Or, oh, somebody messed up the food? No big deal. Blessings in the name of our Lord. You know, I, I thought that that kind of thing would just naturally flow out of me, and I am far less sanctified than I thought I'd be. And that's just around things that make for funny stories, I guess. There are things that are getting worse, that are more serious in my life. I'm far more anxious now than I was 10 years ago at 25. Uh, I'm really sensitive to criticism, and I wish I wasn't. I'm really critical of others in in ways that I hate, truly. After all these years, I still can't figure out how to have consistent time with the Lord, how to commune with him in a way I know he deserves and in the way I know that I need. I'm terrible at rest, terrible at rest. Some of my worst days are my days off. I have to confess things to my community that I thought I'd be done struggling with by now. I am far less like Jesus than I thought I'd be. Anyone else hear these passages again so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless when at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will establish your heart. He will sanctify you completely at the coming of our Lord. Paul points to that day. He slides the picture across the table again and says, see your future. Jesus will perfect you. He'll take all of the wrong away. Of all the sins and struggles and immaturity and immorality that mark our life, there is a day coming at the very sight of Jesus. All of it melts away. And all that's left is Jesus and who we were always meant to be. Think about it. Think about you, free of lust, free of anger, free of fear. Think about you free of worry and self righteousness and doubt. Think about you free of all the things that aren't sins, things you didn't choose, but but things that you struggle with every day. Think about you without depression. Think about you without chronic illness. Think about your life filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self control. And if you, like me, spend a lot of time thinking, will I ever be who I'm supposed to be? The answer in Christ is yes, you will. Not at 35 or 45 or 85, but one day he returns and he perfects and he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this is amazing. John says, when we think about that day, it changes us now. In 1 John 3, dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he, Jesus, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And then listen to this. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will be like him when we see him because we will see him as he is. And what does that hope in that day do for us now? Changes us. Here's what's true. We don't change by thinking about how much we haven't changed. Man, I thought by this age, I thought after these years. No, we change by thinking about, by setting our hearts on how completely we will be changed when Jesus comes back. That's Hebrews 12, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, not fixing our eyes on all that we're not, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who will make us whole, who will one day perfect us, complete us. All that's wrong melts away, and all that's left is who we were always meant to be. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it on that day, friend. Your future, you know how this ends for you? He perfects you. He loves you. He perfects you. And then he comforts you. This is a precious passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It'll be on the screen behind me. I have come here a lot over my years. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism that Paul uses to describe Christians who have died. These are likely, very likely Christians who have been killed for their faith. And the church is mourning that and grieving that, and he counsels them. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then hang on to this. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. Where this is headed for you is Jesus returns and death is finally gone from God's good world. And, and everything sad is made untrue. Tears are wiped away. Life can be really hard, and life can be really painful, and and if you live long enough, we all experience some sort of dark day or some sort of day of suffering. Yesterday, we had a funeral here at Citizens uh, in this room uh, for James Benson Eubanks. It was a time to mourn and celebrate his life. James was born a little over a month before his due date on June 7th at 1.33. He lived about 45 minutes He spent every minute he had with his incredible mom and his incredible dad, and then he went to be with Jesus. And yesterday we mourned and we celebrated his sweet, brief life. And for our church, for citizens, it was our third baby funeral in a year. We've buried three of our church's children in a year's time, Calvin, August, James, And it's too much. And death is awful. Life is painful. In all three of those times, uh, I've come to this passage. And I've sat with these words and see something with me. He says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. He points to the last day. But before he does that, he says something. He does not say, don't grieve. You see that? It's awful. There are things in life that just painful things where the only thing that you can say, the most honest thing that you can say is, it shouldn't be this way. It's not supposed to happen like this. And so Paul here writes to this church who knows that kind of day, who knows what it's like to look at each other and say, not another one. And he says, grieve. He doesn't say don't grieve he says grieve we talk about this often Grief, sadness sorrow in response to pain in response to a broken world it's a godly response my friend god is not honored in stuffed pain and fake smiles my youngest she's four she came to me sobbing this week she had a cut on her foot from playing outside and she's doing that thing where she's crying really hard and talking in full sentences at the same time it's hard to understand her I said, hey, how did that happen? And she said, I don't know, but it hurts really bad. And I said, can I put medicine on it and and get you a Band-Aid? And she said, no. And I said, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And she said, can we just put a sock on my foot so I don't have to look at it anymore? (laughs) And I tried to explain, that won't help, but she insisted, so that's what we did. And the cut came through the sock. And that's the relationship many people have with their wounds and their pain. I would rather cover it with something that makes me forget that it's there. Some substance, humor, bitterness, a relationship, empty religious optimism. The problem with that is just like cuts covered by socks, the wound always seeps through whatever we try to cover it with. The church is not told to not grieve. Grief is honest. There is a more honest response to pain than faking and hiding, and the most honest response is grief. Our Savior says that, right? Blessed are those who mourn. So he says, don't grieve as others who have no hope. Grieve, but don't just grieve. The grief is important. Grieve with hope. There are wounds in this life that will only find healing on the day Jesus returns. Emptiness that will only be filled when Christ comes back. There is sorrow that will only be turned to joy on the day when the clouds part and our Savior shines his love on us forever and ever. And there is nothing like grief that makes the heart long for Jesus to come back. And so Paul says, Grieve and follow your grief to the day when weeping turns to laughing. Grieve, but follow your grief to the day when sorrow turns to dancing. And he describes that day. It's coming for you, it's your future. The dead in Christ will rise, all who are alive are caught up with him in the air. It will be this great reunion. Empty arms reunited with children, daughters reunited with dads, and sons reunited with mothers, and broken hearts mended, and all that's lost, we get back, and what's dead is alive, and what's lost is found. And he says, that day is coming, and so comfort one another now with the comfort that you'll get then. And I want to show you something. Verse 17, he says, we will be with them, with those who have died, we will be with the Lord. And he says this, so we will always be with them. The Lord, the great comfort of the return of Jesus is Jesus. We get Him. We'll always be with Him. Think of what He'll do for you in that moment. The one who's just a touch of His coat could heal years of sickness. How much more will His embrace heal? How much more will seeing him face to face, how wonderful will it be when the words of the song are realized? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. On that day, Jesus comforts finally and fully and the greatest gift of that day, the greatest comfort of that day is him, his very presence. Friends, this is your future. It's how this ends for you. He loves you. He perfects you. He comforts you. The last day of history, the beginning of happily ever after with our good and and gracious God, Jesus returns. And on that day, he loves you and he perfects you and he comforts you. So, live now in light of that day. Live today in light of that future that is coming for you. Do you doubt his love? Do you worry that God is angry? Do you fear God is punishing you? He'll deliver you from wrath. He will. Your judgment day is behind you. It's it's buried in the grave that Jesus overcame. He will love you then. He loves you now. Be confident in that. Are you discouraged that you're not further along than you are? Did you mess up again this week? Did you walk into church this morning and louder than anything else was your failures? He will perfect you. He will make you whole One day you will never fail again. One day you'll never sin again. One day you'll never struggle again. One day you'll see him as he is and just the sight of him. Everything wrong with me and everything wrong with you will just fade away and our God of peace will sanctify us completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So if that day is coming today, be faithful. Not perfect, but be faithful. Receive grace confess sin, take up your cross, follow Jesus. You won't change as fast as you want to. Maybe you'll still be quick to anger. Maybe you'll never figure out how to consistently have time with God. Maybe you confess some version of the same sin for the rest of your life. Keep going. Keep obeying. Keep leaning into grace. Look to Jesus, the perfecter of your faith. And one day, one day, He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll say, Jesus, I never got there. I changed so slowly. I was an inconsistent mess. And He says, But I'm faithful. I said I would surely do it, and I have. Well done. He will comfort you. The day is coming when He heals all. Is today dark? life right now really sad hope in him today yesterday at James's funeral his dad Wes and his mom Caroline both spoke and through their grief they testified of their hope in Jesus it's happened every time we have had that service in this room mom and dad stand and they hold their sorrow in one hand and they hold their trust in Jesus in another and it's remarkable And what I have learned through them is that there is a day beautiful enough and sure enough and bright enough to even shine on the darkest days. It's the day when Jesus returns and drives dark days out of God's world forever. It's coming. He is coming. Hope in him. God, we love you. And we need you. We sang this to you already, but Jesus, you are beautiful and wonderful. We worship you and we thank you, God. Lord, the um, messenger feels far from the message. So I just ask in dependence on your spirit that you would appropriate your truth into the hearts of my brothers and sisters. The one who fears you, feels far from you, that you would whisper in the deepest part of who they are that they are loved now. They'll be loved then and they can be confident in your love. The one who just feels so overwhelmed and enslaved by shame and guilt where they have some sort of inner voice that constantly rehearses their flaws back to them, would you just shout in their soul, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You will perfect them. And while we're waiting for that perfection, we have a great high priest at the right hand of the Father who's speaking a very different word about us. Rehearsing not our flaws back to us, but rehearsing the gospel, the blood of Jesus over and again that covers us. To the one God whose day is dark, we're just surrounded by grief and sorrow. Pray that you would comfort them You would comfort them today with the truth of a God who knows what it's like. You would comfort them today with the truth of a God who knows tears and death and saying goodbye. And you would comfort them with the truth of a day that is true enough and good enough and beautiful enough and bright enough to challenge the darkest of days. Only you can do it, God, We need you, amen.